just want to tell you a little bit about this weekend. Um, one of my favorite songs right there, when I was little, there was a lady that Miss Evelyn taught me Sunday school, and Victory in Jesus was hymn 492 in the hymnal. And every time we sang it, I would, you know, Mom, Miss Evelyn's going to sing. And she had this, she would sing it out loud, and it was this high-pitched, it was terrible. And Mom was like, calm down, calm down, don't say anything, you know. But it was always a fun song. But I was thinking about this. As a football coach, it would be great to go in every Friday night knowing the victory was won. We could just enjoy the game. We could just, you know, take everything, all the preparation, the time we had put into it, and playing a game and coaching a game that we love – and just enjoy the heck out of it. No anxiety, no nerves. And as I hear this, I'm just reminded that in life, as Christians, like the victory is won, guys. Like it's over. We know the end. We can just go through life. And in all of our struggles, as we're surrounded with all the battles and all the struggles, the victory is ours. It's over. It belongs to God and to us through Christ Jesus. And so this weekend, yesterday, Parker taught Ephesians 6 and put it on the full armor of God. Connor and I were talking about as we've been leading the students through walking with, walking with God and walking more closely with him, is that how do we kind of want to tie in the end of this sort of series that we were doing? And uh, we, we thought, what better way than understanding that as we go through life, there, there are going to be battles. We're going to be surrounded. How do we do that? Well, we prepare ourselves. And Paul is very clear in Ephesians 6 how we prepare ourselves. But the thing that Parker did a great job of tying it all back into, and you heard Phil allude to that, is that we put on the full armor of God. And we do that so that we can fight these battles in the strength and the might of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we can't do it on our own. And so this morning, Parker's going to come preach this morning. Uh, Parker is a student minister at uh, Eagle Heights Baptist Church in Stillwater, Oklahoma. Parker and I have been friends for about... Five years, uh, it feels like forever. Uh, Parker's one of those people that God puts in your life that um, just kind of changes the trajectory spiritually. And he reminds me often that I'm very much older than he is, significantly older apparently. Um, and so it's an encouragement to our students and to our youth and don't let anyone despise you or look down on you for your youth because even in that uh, idea of Parker being significantly younger is that he had a huge impact spiritually on me and the time I've known him, continues to do so right now, um, but also in changing my family uh, spiritually. And so um, very, very thankful for Parker and what he's meant to, to me and to our family and very excited to hear a word from him this morning. So if you guys would just bow your head, we'll pray and then Parker will come up and, and, and teach for us. Father God, we just thank you so much for the victory. Father, what an incredible thought that as we go through life, no matter what we face, no matter what surrounds us, no matter what we may encounter, what obstacles may be thrown in front of us, Father, that we don't have to worry. We are who you say we are. We belong to you as children of God. The victory is already won. I just thank you for that knowledge, and I pray that each believer in here, Father, would Walk in that confidence, walk in knowing that as we belong to you, that we also belong to that same victory. Father, I pray that you would just be with Parker right now as he brings your word. Father, we would hear from you and not from Parker, Father, but we just thank you so much for what he spoke into, what you spoke into our students through Parker this weekend. And I just pray that it would just resonate with them daily, Father, and that they would prepare themselves. They would constantly be checking, they aren't checking their armor 
They would be putting on their armor daily. And that, Father, each of us would realize that whether it's our workplace, our office, Father, for me, my classroom, for the football field, the weight room, whatever it may be, that that is our battlefield. Make no mistake about it. We are at war each and every day. And, Father, let us never forget that. Father, we love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, as Reynolds said, my name is Parker Goforth. That was a very kind introduction from my old, old, old friend Reynolds. Uh, it was good. Uh, again, it's just so, so good to be with you. If you want to open up to Philippians chapter 1, we will be in verses 27 through 30 this morning. Uh, and so that will follow up well what we've been talking about this weekend. We've been in Ephesians chapter 6, this story, this passage that students have likely heard over and over, that many of us have likely heard over and over, the armor of God, put on this armor of God. I talked to students about how I'm from Oklahoma, so the buckle of the Bible belt. And so similarly, I have heard this idea. And when we come to a passage like this, my brain can go, great, I know this, and we tune out. And I don't worry about it very much. Okay, armor of God, the powers of darkness. Oh, I'm so worried. And what we talked about is that one of the greatest strategies the enemy can utilize is to lead us to forget that we are at war. That if we forget that we're at war, we will not prepare the same. We will not care for one another the same. And we won't live the same. We talked about it this way. It's a fun way. If you can imagine if Jason had come up during the announcements and said, all right, hey, super excited announcement, Covenant. Uh, we're going to start a bomb diffusal class for the next month right here at Covenant. Incredible opportunity. Come in, learn how to diffuse bombs. You'd be like, it's weird, kind of cool. Uh-uh. I might learn about it. Seems like it could be useful if I was ever in that situation. Uh, that might be helpful. And you, you might check it out. You might look at it. You might not. But if Jason came in and said, hey, Covenant, we're going to be doing a bomb diffuser class for the next month because we've been all selected to go to the front lines next month and defuse bombs overseas. How much more would you pay attention in every bit of that course? Well, why? Did the material within change? Well, no, but the reality that you were about to step out into battle changed. That as anything was taught or said, you wouldn't be going, okay, that's just something. You'd be going, hey, repeat that. I need to know what wire to cut. You'd be looking at your friend saying, hey, don't just sit there. Don't fall asleep. You need to know this because I care about you. And you would walk throughout your day thinking through it, planning on it. Why? Because it all matters deeply. Why? Because you recognize you are at battle. But again, one of the greatest strategies Satan has is to lead all of us, children to adults, to forget your greatest enemy is not flesh and blood, but the powers of darkness that want to lead you away from God daily. And that's what we talked about with students. Paul says, stand firm, stand strong in the Lord and his might. How do we do that? By putting on the armor of God. Why? Because you are at war. And so we talked about clothing ourselves in all of this, in righteousness, in faith, readiness from the gospel, rest in that salvation that we have in Christ, filling our life with God's word so that we would be prepared. And now what I want to do this morning is take that, Look at Philippians chapter 1 and how we see that same call given to the church to do together. That this isn't just an urge for individuals, but for all of us. So we look at Philippians chapter 1 and to set the context, right, Paul is writing this letter from prison. 
to the church at Philippi. He's encouraging them, thankful for their faith, thankful that the gospel's continuing to move while he is in prison. And then as you get to the end of chapter one, he has this beautiful passage. He says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying, if I'm gonna live, it is gonna be all about Jesus. And if I die while here in prison, it's gonna be all about Jesus. And so he says, but I'm gonna remain here so that your faith will continue to grow and to press on and we get into this passage. And I believe Paul has two exhortations for the church in Philippians chapter one, verses 27 through 30. If you're taking notes, that first exhortation is stand firm in the gospel together. Stand firm in the gospel together. Take a look at verse 27 in Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You look at that first word, he's saying only. He he gets to this section and saying, if you're going to hear something, hear this. After what he said, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, but I'm here to press you forward. Hear this. Do what? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So your manner of life, the way you live, the way you conduct yourself, what you devote your time to, what you worship, be what? Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, what does that mean? That means that if somebody looked in and said, you're worthy of being called a Christian, you're worthy of being declared somebody who's made new, right? It'd be like somebody claiming that they were an LSU fan, but not knowing anything about the team, what sports they might even participate in, or what the L or the S or the U even stand, like, stand for. They're like, you're not worthy to be called an LSU fan because you don't know anything about them and your life doesn't demonstrate that you are affected by them at all. It would be the same as a Christian saying that they are a Christian, but as you look at their life, you're saying your life does not reflect that you have been transformed by the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying live in a manner worthy of the gospel. That requires us and leads us to the joyous uh, remembrance of the gospel. Just remember that beautiful truth, that reality that you and I live in, that God created the heavens and the earth. There is a just and holy God over all of creation, including man, yet we have sinned. It says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just an idea. That's not just something the church throws out. That is something that you and I live in. As we were in Ephesians, we looked back at chapter 2 with this beautiful section where we have a dark intro And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Because as I stand in my sin before a holy God, there is no hope. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, you see the gospel enter in here. These two beautiful words, it says, but God. But God being rich in mercy, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to come and live the perfect life that we fail to live, to die a death he didn't deserve, to take the wrath of God that we deserve on him, but not stay dead, but rise again, defeating death, leaving for us the helper, the Holy Spirit, saying that if any would believe in Jesus as Lord, they would be saved. Do you hear the gospel? 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that through that, we have been empowered to pursue and live holy lives. So Paul is saying, live in a manner worthy of that. Because when our manner of life lines up with the gospel, the work of Christ is magnified to everybody who looks in. That when our time is devoted to spiritual disciplines, to the church, to caring for our families, to speaking about the Lord, to being obedient to God's word, we start living in this manner that is worthy of the gospel. When our words are seasoned with salt and build others up and declare the glory of God, we are declaring Christ's great worth. When your purity is vitally important, we are demonstrating that the word of the Lord and his atonement for sins is a major, major deal. When our priorities in our own lives and in our families are God and his word, we demonstrate the redeeming work of Christ. So it begs the question, what does your life declare? The manner in which you live your life, what does it tell the world about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Parents, what does it tell your children, your siblings, your coworkers? Your neighbors here, this is Paul's plea from prison. He's saying, go live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Why? He gives a a reason. Keep reading on there in verse 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He said that whether I'm with you or whether I'm away from you, I would hear that you are standing firm. Paul has called believers, that God has called believers through his word, to consistency in that manner at all times. I wonder if, like me, when you hear that, that's a convicting call. That it's not saying, hey, just live in a manner worthy of the gospel when it's easy, or on Sundays, or maybe Wednesdays as you check in, but at all times. Paul was saying, whether I'm there or I'm not. And Paul describes what that would look like. What would living in a manner worthy of the gospel look like specifically? Paul says, so whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. You're standing firm, that you are holding fast to what is true. And recognize that him saying that if he would see us standing firm, it implies that there are going to be storms pressing in. That there are going to be wars that try to shake us. That if left idle, if not rooted in, we would blow away. You've gotten to see a lot of that over this past week as Louisiana encountered snow for the first time since creation. (laughs) That... Were these structures designed to handle the storms that came their way? Paul is saying that living worthy of the gospel is seen in your continued standing firm in the faith, in devotion to the Lord, in your love for one another, in your deeds. But how is Paul saying that would be demonstrated? How is Paul urging us to stand firm? Read on there again in verse 27. Hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, With one mind striving side by side for the faith 
of the gospel. Hear those. Just, just think about that. He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit and in one mind, right? With the same zeal and desire, with the same focus and driving passion. You see, I, I grew up playing soccer because, you know, I'm weird and not American, right? And, and I love now, oddly, watching professional soccer. So I'll wake up at 6.30 on Saturday to watch the noon games in Europe and watch those. As I root for those teams, my wife and I are not participating in that of one mind and one spirit because she does not care. (laughs) As people are playing soccer on the television, I'm like, wow, that was a good pass. And she goes, sure, I guess. Why are they going backwards? I'm like, you don't get the beauty of the game. But she, she isn't in the same spirit, same mind. That is, we're supposed to cheer for that. As we're supposed to press forward in that. We're not unified in our same desires. We don't want to see the same thing. I'm hungering for that win and that victory. It literally has no impact on her life. As the church, when Paul is calling us to be of one spirit, of one mind, to have the same passion, the same idea that unites us, he's saying that we are united by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whereas I describe my wife looking in as I watch soccer and saying, I can't relate to that. I have no part in that. As believers, we are all united by the work of Jesus. And that our driving passion should be that he receives glory in all areas of our life. So Paul is saying, you see that the church is standing firm because we are united by the gospel, not separated by our different wants and desires and different maybe preferences, but we are united under the primary importance of the gospel. And that that is seen because we do so together. Right, hear that again, that with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That we would stand side by side in the face of danger. This goes against so much of what we think about in our culture and in many cases of Christianity where we kind of hear it as an individual work, just a work on you, worry about you. Now Paul is saying to strive together. Do you hear that call? Because this weekend we talked a lot about preparing ourselves for war, putting on our armor, but how does a battle go if it is fought alone? I was thinking of a storm I endured by myself at one point. Again, I'm from Oklahoma, so our common weather is tornadoes. And I remember I was hanging out with my friend down the street, and some of you may know, uh, when I was a senior in high school, I was about five foot two maybe 90, 100 pounds, um, not just as huge as I am now. Um, and I was over at my friend's house. There was a tornado warning coming in. They said, hey, this is all picking up. You guys should probably head home. I said, deal. We get outside. Winds are just already whipping. The area's just going through all this. And we, I, I lived about eight houses down. I said, all right, I'm going to run home. I'm with my friend Daniel. He was a big, strong guy. I was like, great. We start taking off towards my house, just running. And I look, and I was like, I think I'm faster than Daniel But Daniel's gaining a lot of ground on me. And then I stopped and realized that because of the strength of the wind and because I was a tiny blade of grass, essentially, I was not moving at all. (laughs) That the wind was blowing. I was just going, and just in one place, that this storm was pressing me. 
if I was left to myself, I would have been that cow at the beginning of the Wizard of Oz. Like, that would have been it. Like, I would have just been gone. But I remember, which is a really, you know, makes you feel like a man moment, was my friend turning around and going, I got you, and ran back, picked me up, and carried me through this tornado. And I was just like, again, senior in high school, like, hey, thanks, man. Like, this is the best. But if I had been left in that storm alone, I would have been done. There was no hope of making it through. So again, as we step into battle alone, how does that go? There's a chance of individual victories, maybe, but how much more incredible would it be if we were fighting together? Imagine standing on the battlefield surrounded by brothers and sisters who are fighting the same fight. What confidence and strength that brings. So are we? Right, I believe Paul's urging in God's word in Ephesians 6 to put on the armor of God applies to all of us, for all of us are at war. But are we preparing and warring together? I asked the students this weekend if they are preparing to stand firm in the gospel, but what about you, parents? What about you, senior adults, young married couples, What about you families, singles, empty nesters? Are you preparing for this war? Are you doing that same thing or are you hoping you figure it out and then others just will on their own as well? You can think about flying on a plane when you lose cabin pressure, right? Those little masks fall out. What are parents instructed to do first? Put yours on first then start helping these others. That's not because you don't care about them, but we need you alive if you're going to help them. It's this idea that as we're talking about sending our kids into war, we need people around them who are prepped as well. That you are called to lead. You are called to prep yourself, and you are called to fight along with one another. Parents, fight the fight of faith with your children. Grandparents, continue to instruct and teach and lead in that battle. Students, lock arms with your family and walk through that together. All of you, lock arms with your local church. You need them and they need you. And how do we do this? Are we equipping ourselves to know, trust, and treasure the Lord well? Are we equipping our families if you're going to tell your children to put on the armor of God, you better be doing that also. I've, I've found that in my life, as I look into Charles Spurgeon, and there's something I want to say, he's always said it better. That he has a saying, you know, there's the verse that says, train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. He said, train up a child in the way they should go, but you better go that way yourself. That here, this call is for all of us. That we don't just go, I hope they get it right. But to look of, am I preparing to fight? Am I checking on my own armor? Are you reading the Bible with your family? Or just hoping they hear it once a week? Are you talking to them about doctrine? Or just hoping they hear it through osmosis? Are you teaching them truth that they would be equipped for the war that we're in, just spiritually, and we see it in our culture? And realize this doesn't just have to be children. In your marriage, are you checking on your spouse? 
Really, when was the last time you made sure your spouse was battle ready? When was the last time you checked if they were ready for the spiritual war they are in? It could be a relationship. It could be your friendships. Singles, are you encouraging your friends to prepare for war? Are you finding a veteran to study under that you would be trained in wisdom and knowledge? Are you encouraging your local church with your presence and your gifting? Because how are we going to make it in the war? Primarily by God's grace. But in his grace, he's called us to stand firm together. See, one of the great tragedies in our era of church history is that we've siloed the church so much that we forget that we are all walking together. I'm not saying these areas are bad, but I work in student ministry, and there's the danger that we can create our own little church in student ministry. And there's our own little church in children's ministry, and we'll do our thing, and then we have our senior adult ministry, and they'll do that, and we forget that we are the church, that together we are the body of Christ. How beautiful would it be if the church, from children to youth to singles to parents to families, were locking arms, encouraging one another, and pressing forward for the sake of the gospel? And that can be kind of weird, but I promise you it's worthwhile. I remember encountering it while I was at seminary. I was at this local church. They said, do you want to do a small group? I said, deal. They go, great. We put you in this small group. Go, go enjoy it. I went to my first small group, and I said, what in the world am I doing here? I was a young single guy. There was one other guy my age in that group. Then there was a young married couple, a couple that had just had a child, an older couple that had four children, another older couple. And I was like, why am I in this group? I have nothing in common with these people. Why would I come every week and just want to do a Bible study with a bunch of people that I can't really relate to? And over time, I realized that we were united, one spirit and one mind by the gospel. And I grew to love those people, and I gleaned wisdom from young married couples that I wouldn't have got from just a group of people my age. I learned wisdom from these older couples that have walked through trials that I was going through that I wouldn't have got if I had just stuck to my area. It is beautiful when the church comes together, stands side by side for the gospel. How can you do this more? How can you equip yourself and your family more? How can you equip your brothers and sisters in Christ more? For trials are here and more will come. But if we stand side by side with one another without fear, look what happens. Look at verse 28. In one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That as you continue to stand firm in the gospel despite pressures, it's clear that our hope is in Christ and not in earthly treasures. Here that Paul's saying that us standing firm together reveals two realities. The first is that those opposed to Christ will not ultimately prevail. We've already talked about this this morning, right? That there's victory in Jesus. But as you stand firm, your continued perseverance reveals that that is a failing attack. I remember that uh, when I was playing soccer, I was always such a polite person. And as I would trash talk or insult individuals, (laughs) the hardest opponents to ever play were the ones that it did nothing to. 
That as I tried to talk trash, as I tried to insult them, I tried to say these things, and they would get shaken, they would get frustrated, they would come back at me, oh, that was great, I love it, because it was working. And I knew I had a chance to win there because I was in his head. But if they weren't bent at all, if they just continued to stay the course despite the pressures, I, I was terrified. Recognize that as the church bends to pressures, it declares weakness. It shows that maybe we just don't really trust in the gospel. But as we stand firm, it declares that they will not ultimately prevail, that the ultimate end of those that stand up to Christ is destruction. There's this beautiful passage in Revelation chapter 20 where the people of God are so surrounded by the army of Satan, it describes them as sand on the seashore. And it seems as if this moment of like, well, there's no hope. They lose. And the next verse is, and then God destroyed them. That was it. This insurmountable opposition was crushed instantly. And as you stand firm in the gospel, our unity and endurance reveals the frailty of life outside of Christ. Because the second reality that Paul's pointing to there is that the work of Christ will not fail. See that in verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. That your faithfulness points to Christ's work in the gospel. Your continued faithfulness points to your salvation. And it's not a pointing to your strength, but the strength of the one who is greater. It points to the the truth that you have been saved by grace through faith, and it is a gift of God, so that no one would boast, but that they would point to God who deserves the glory. Because when you stand firm in trials, when we stand firm together, God is glorified. So be strong in the Lord. That's Paul's encouragement. Four trials are coming. Look at this. Here's the second main exhortation, the last point today, that Paul gives in this passage. He tells us to prepare for trials. Prepare yourself for trials. Why? Look at these exciting verses here, 29 and 30. He's saying, I want to come, whether I'm with you or away, hear that you're standing firm. Why? For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So why does Paul encourage the church to stand together in the gospel Because it's been granted to you, not only to believe, which is incredible news. Remember that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That has been given to us. What a gift. It's not only been granted to you to believe in him, what? But also to suffer for his sake. What? The gift that has been given to us as believers is to suffer for the sake of the gospel? As Paul did, this one who was in prison for his faith, as Christ did, who was killed. See, this flies in the face of feel-good, fluffy Christianity, promoted by the prosperity gospel and many churches that don't want to address the weight of sin and the difficulty of following a God who is well worth all of our worship, is that suffering will come. 
that has been given to the church to suffer. And again, it's putting us in that war analogy. You can think that a soldier going to war for the right reason is going to be in trial. And I don't think I really have to convince you that suffering is coming for Christians. I mean, as we look at our country, as we look at what's going on around us, that our culture more and more hates God, but as Romans 1 declares, not only hates it, but celebrates hating God, that our access to filth and sin and depravity is greater than it has ever been, that families are being destroyed rapidly, that Christianity is being pressed on more and more and more here. Suffering will come. And knowing that, are you prepared for it? Are you preparing for it? Right? If somebody told you, if they said, hey, look, I'm going to come to your house and break in and steal all your things uh, tomorrow, you would go, all right, I'm going to prep for that. <laughs> and you would set things up. You would lock. You would have your gun ready. You would do all these different things because you knew that was coming. Even more so if they said, not only am I going to come and take your things, I'm going to come and I'm going to hurt your family. I'm going to destroy them as well. Your preparation would be rigorous. But as we hear of this spiritual war, as we see that this is coming for us and for the church, are you preparing? Are you preparing your family for the storm? How do we do that? Read and treasure God's word. Know it. Don't just hear it. Know it. We need a generation that knows God's word as lies are tossed about at the church. What else? Pray and pray and pray some more. The church needs that. And the good thing about prayer is that God answers it. And pray without ceasing. A way a professor described that to me is that you should always be a moment away from prayer. Not just randomly at meals, but constantly as it comes about. Lock arms with your local church and support them because we need one another. How about your family? Is your family ready for this war? How often do you talk about the gospel in your walls? Have you talked about difficult cultural issues with one another that you be prepared to stand on truth? Do you demonstrate faithful prayer, not just at meals, but for one another, out loud, specifically, thanking the Lord, praying for missionaries, praying for your local church? Have you taught your children to love and treasure the local church? Christ died for the church. <laughs> Have you demonstrated that it's that important? Because this all begs the question, are we prepared? Because we are at war, spiritually, and we must be ready and resting in Christ, and we must do so together. So I hope you're asking, what could I do to be more of a Christian community? And I want to make sure that what I'm not giving you is just a, a good, okay, go be tough message, because we will fall in our own strength. What I'm calling the church to recognize is that we are a weak group of sinners who serve a great and mighty God. And it is a call to remember and rest in the gospel. That passage, Ephesians 6, uh, verse 10 says, Be strong in the Lord and his might. Put on the whole 
armor of God. Rest in and love Jesus because when you do, it is beautiful. As John says in 2nd and 3rd John, he says, I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in truth. What he's describing there is in his family, he's saying, I am so encouraged when I hear of the church walking together in the gospel. Is that what brings you joy? Is that what you are walking towards? Hear Paul's encouragement to the church. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Love the Lord, pursue holiness, lock arms and walk into battle together for the victory is won in Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we just thank you for your word. What a good reminder this is for each and every one of us. Oh Lord, it's so convicting to me. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be honest with our own lives, to evaluate, are we living in a manner worthy of the gospel or are we just coasting? Lord, how have we cared for our friends and our family? Would you bring people to mind that we would need to press forward in their preparation? Lord, would you make us so aware of the battle we are in? Not to bring us fear, but to bring us to readiness, to bring us to prepare well, and then, Lord, that it would bring us to remember the gospel. Lord, I pray that for each and every one of us. Will we remember the good news of Jesus Christ? That it's not just something that's said at church, but that it is a reality. It is the best news. Lord, I pray that if there's any that don't know Jesus as Lord, that they would hear that good news, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, and if they would put their faith in Jesus as Lord, they would be saved. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord. We love you and live for you, for your name's sake. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.